everybody, welcome to Two Strike Noise, your pretty much weekly uh, baseball history podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm one half of the show. The other half of the show is sitting uh, comfortably in the uh, remote studios. It is uh, my co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, how you doing? I'm I'm very comfortable. It's a nice 71 degrees in the uh, in the office, and uh, it's snowing outside, so that makes me feel very Christmassy. Okay, I don't know where you... It's 71 <laughs> degrees and it's snowing. Well, You have to guess where I am, yeah. Climate yeah, change is real, folks. Don't... Uh, it's know. changing right at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've, got a, we've got a special show today. We've got, uh, we've got a couple of guests that uh, we've, uh, we've had a little, uh, little shuffling of the schedule, but we're finally going to get to talk with them. Uh, very interesting. We'll uh, let you know who that is. But, uh, you know, first of all, we've got to get into our BP segment because we don't want to go into an interview cold. You know, we gotta, no, you can't. Got to get warmed up. So let's get right into our BP segment. We've got a bit to catch up with here, Mark, because we didn't uh, we didn't get the show out last week. So yes. let's get right into it. First of all, the Little League World Series is over. That's sad, but it was a, a month of fun baseball to watch. The U.S. team won the title, a walk-off home run. Very exciting stuff. But clearly, this was not the biggest news to come out of this tournament. One of the kids on the West team, which came from Southern California, they won the whole thing uh, with that walk-off home run. Uh, I don't remember who the player was. I don't think it was the guy that hit the home run. But, you know, they do these questionnaires. I think I've even mentioned it in, in a recent show, asking just mundane questions, but they get good answers. But one of them is, you know, who's your favorite Major League Baseball player? You get the usual Mike Trout, Mike Judge, Ken Griffey Jr., you know, all these kind of things. One kid, though, I got very excited. He listed his favorite players, Lars Newtbar. Nice. Yeah. No, I thought that kid needs to be on the show. Yeah, well, I thought that was pretty cool. But then we got some more info as to why his favorite player is Lars Newtbar. And that is because his sister is dating Lars (laughs) Newtbar. Well, that's not fair. That's easy to get a fan that way. Yeah, I know. It's like uh, if if she was not dating him, would he be your favorite player? I don't right? know. Come on. My ears perked up when I heard Lars Newtbar, and then I hear this extra part of the story, and I was very excited. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> congratulations to California and to the entire country of the United States, because once again, we won this thing. There you go. Congrats. All right. uh, Let's see. Negro League Baseball Museum announced their Hall of Fame class or Hall of Game, as they like to call it. I like that for 2023. These are the names. Uh, I think everybody that listens to this podcast probably pretty familiar with uh, most of these names. Vita Blue going in there. I like that. A's fan. Just Bay Area. I mean, the Giants uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, Al Downing, Mm -hmm. pitcher. Remember, he gave uh, gave up Hank Aaron's. Henry Aaron's sure did. Uh, yes. record-breaking home run. Doc Gooden is going in. That's kind of surprising he was. Kind of surprising Vita Blue hadn't been in there either. Another Oakland athletic, Mike Norris. Oh, Mike Norris, sure. Is going to go in. And then another uh, local from the Bay Area, Dontrell Willis. Oh, cool. Is going in. Did I say, I said Mike Norris, not Mike Willis, right? You, Mike said, Mike, you said Chuck Norris. No, I'm kidding. Oh, you said oh, Mike Norris. Yeah. Well, Chuck Norris has already been in. Kind of interesting. All five are all pitchers, which is huh. unique. I I didn't notice that until literally before the show started. And then I scribbled down a note, uh, all pitchers. So congratulations to them. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good Hall of Fame 
Hall of Game class. I'm not sure when that when that happens, uh, but that'll be in. I'm gonna assume it'll be in Kansas City uh, at the uh, Negro League uh, Baseball Museum. So congratulations to all involved. Uh, let's see. Uh, speaking of the Oakland Athletics, I do that every now and then. Let's speak of them. Uh, let's see. First of all, I love this story. There is a coffee shop in Lake Tahoe. I love Lake Tahoe. I have not been there for a while, but I I love Lake Tahoe. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Uh, in the winter or the summer, it is it is a, an experience, as long as it's not on fire. But regardless, uh, there is a coffee shop there. It is called the Treehouse Cafe, which I don't think has anything to do with the treehouse portion of the Oakland uh, Coliseum, but the owners of this coffee shop are A's fans, and they have a sign in their window that says they reserve the right to refuse service. We, and it says this exactly, we reserve the right to refuse service to any member of the Oakland Athletics Ownership Group. (laughs) Nice. John Fisher, Rob Manfred, and Bud Selig can go F off. But they are big a, fans. That's awesome. I, I I I love that. Now, what's interesting though is that this coffee shop is very close to property that John Fisher's family owns, so they very well could happen to to stop by this coffee shop. I dare them. You know, I I'd be honest. I know what John Fisher looks like, but if some dude just walked up and asked me a question, it could be John Fisher, and I wouldn't put two and two together. Yeah. Uh, if I did know, I would, I'd say something to him. <laughs> but of course, you know, I remember when the uh, the All Star Game, or no, no, it wasn't the All Star Game. It was the uh, the World Baseball Classic, not this last year, but the previous year was at Dodger Stadium, and I was there. I passed Bud, uh, not Bud, uh, Rob Manfred in the uh, in the in the hallways up there in the press section, and I said to him as I walked past him, "Keep the A's in Oakland." He didn't do it. He's no. screw you, Rob Manfred. Yeah, man. What's up with Manfred? He should know better. He should, but <laughs> he really should. On a lot of things. Idiot. Anyway, another Oakland athletic thing here. So the A's, there's no way if going to Vegas that this new stadium is going to be ready for 2027 or 2028, whenever they're hoping it to be ready. I mean, they don't even have plans for it. They don't even know for sure exactly where it's going to go. Should it end up there? They're going to need to play home games somewhere in that interim. So there's a lot of discussion. They're going to play next year for sure at the Coliseum. Their lease is then up at the Coliseum. There's been talks that maybe, you know, Oakland might let them stay and continue playing there for a lot of money. I bleed them dry. Yeah. There's also, you know, talks about playing at uh, the Las Vegas Aviators, the A's AAA club. I think that's pretty much there's no way they could do that. They couldn't have two teams playing there. Plus, I mean, think about the the seating. You know, when the Yankees come to town or a big team, you know, a rival, you're going to want to fill up a stadium. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. But, I mean, also the players' union is never going to let major league players play in a 100-plus degree temperature. not a chance. The grounds crew, it is a grass stadium. The grounds crew has said there's no way that the stadium could handle that. It would have to be switched over to turf, which is just going to make it hotter on the field. (laughs) There has been talks about maybe having them play in Salt Lake City, which is interesting to Mm. me. 
because the Smith ballpark there where it's only 30 years old, it's a beautiful ballpark. I went to a game there again earlier this year. You've got the Wasatch Mountains out in center field. It's a beautiful minor league ballpark. But for some reason, the bees are going to be moving like 30 minutes south into the suburbs, nowhere near the city center. But they're going to do that in a couple of years. I don't think they've begun construction there. So this stadium will be empty before they tear it down, but they could leave it up longer. Maybe the A's play there. I don't know. There's talk about playing at Oracle Park for a couple of years. It's crazy, man. They don't have a clue what's going on, do they? Well, well, they don't have a clue, period. But the, uh, the mayor of Oakland has apparently informed Major League Baseball that they could extend the lease here in Oakland. But there are some uh, some caveats, one of which would be leaving the athletics name here in Oakland. Mm. So Las Vegas would could not be the Las Vegas athletics, which I would love that. Uh, That would make me very happy. Another one of those caveats possibly is that, uh, okay, well, we get an expansion team when Major League Baseball expands. Sure. Give us a new owner, the one that wants to stay here. You know, the owner of the the Warriors uh, has has an offer on the table still to buy the team. It, he's he's had that on the table for several years, but John Fisher's an idiot. But I, I'm going to stop talking about the A's because I get a little riled up, but I thought... No, that, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I thought some of that was interesting. <laughs> Let's see, uh, Nick Castellanos. You know, Nicky Two Bags, first of all, great nickname. Uh, no matter what he does for the rest of his career, he will probably be best remembered for hitting some very oddly timed home runs. I pride myself and think of myself as a a man of faith as there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos it will be a home run and so that'll make it a four nothing ball game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I mean that I have a t-shirt mark that has that phrase on it. <laughs> so I mean it's 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 a meme it will live on forever. I think he was the one also in spring training a couple of years ago that he was at bat and his son was in the stands right behind home plate and I know we talked about it. I I just didn't remember if it was Nick or not. His son had uh, something like a piece of glass and he was trying to shine the the sunlight in the pitcher's eyes. <laughs> When he's pitching to his dad, which is not that smart. But. <laughs> it's amusing. So here's a quote I found from Nick about Scooby-Doo. You know, there's most major leaguers at some point are going to be asked about Scooby-Doo, I feel. Sure. So it was Nick's turn. And this is, uh, this is his thoughts on Scooby-Doo. Quote, first off, he's a dog who can talk. So I think a dog who can talk and help people by solving mysteries is considered a superhero. End quote. Okay. I don't disagree with him. Just the talking part makes him super. And then yeah. the uh, saving people makes him hero. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on board with Scooby-Doo being a superhero. I think I think that's good. Yeah, I think he would frankly make the uh, the Marvel Universe a lot more interesting to me. He certainly could. Yes. Yeah. Next Avengers. Movie, Does he get to take Shaggy with him, though? Like, wow. Uh, let's see. Mark, hey, remember not this last All-Star game in Seattle, but the previous one in 2001. Yes. You, I think you probably remember that. Uh, Cal Ripken, remember? Yep. He was uh, the starting third baseman, but Alex Rodriguez, in what was considered a nice gesture, said, you go play short. I, I'll go I'll go to third. Yep, I remember that. So Ripken wasn't happy about that. <laughs> really? Yeah, I found this article, and he says, quote, I was kind of blank and pissed at him, to be honest. 
he hadn't played shortstop in a long time, and he uh, did not have the glove that he wanted to wear if he was going to play shortstop. He was wearing kind of a bigger third baseman's glove, so not happy about that. Hmm. He sprung it on him without anything. Yeah, no good deed goes unpunished, I guess. But still, I mean, probably should have run that past him before, you know, they're getting ready to take the field or whenever that came about. I don't know. but Yeah. Uh, let's see, Mark, let's get to some debuts here. Now, this uh, show was supposed to debut last week, and I did all the research for last week, so I don't want that to go to waste. My time is very valuable, Mark. <laughs> It's, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know. You make me pay you for it. It's crazy. I know. It, in case nobody knew, I do charge Mark to be on this podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair amount. Yeah. It's a fair amount of money. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's scale times four. So <laughs> uh, let's see. So these debuts, let's just pretend that it's August 23rd. Okay. okay. Let's just yep. pretend it is. All right. We're so making their debuts today. August 23rd, if people are randomly checking their calendars and their smartwatches. Oh, my God. Uh, let's see. In 1991, it was Kent Herbeck made his Ooh. debut uh, in, in Major League Baseball. H.R. Beck. Herbie, yeah. So his entire 14-year career with Minnesota ended up with uh, 293 home runs, a 282 average, a 367 on base, and 1,086 RBI, two World Series, both obviously with Minnesota. If he played his entire career with Minnesota, I guess I could have inferred that. But uh, only All-Star one time. Wow, really? And that was his second year in the league. <laughs> he played 24 games in 1981 as a rookie. And the next year he was an All-Star. Wow. So he made his major league debut today in uh, 1981. During the 12th inning, he hit a home run versus the Yankees to give the Twins a 3-2 victory. So uh, I didn't write. I've got to assume that was in Yankee Stadium. Otherwise, I would have said he hit a walk-off home run. Right. But, uh, he was the runner-up for American League Rookie of the Year in 1982 behind the aforementioned Cal Ripken, professional podcasting. Tied that all together. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, most people might remember him for tagging or lifting Ron Gant off the base in game two of the 1991 World Series. And people are still burned uh, about that, and they're going to be forever. Yeah, I don't blame them. I don't, I, don't I don't blame Atlanta fans for that. But no. while I was looking up Kent Herbeck stuff, I think we might have talked about this before. There is a poem written by Phil Bol- Balsta. Bolsta, not sure, Phil, I apologize, but he's got his name copyrighted here on what I'm looking at, uh, called Herbeck at the Bat, which is a rewriting of Homer at the Bat. No, just kidding. It's uh, it's Casey at the Bat. But it is a, uh, it's pretty long, so I'm not going to read it all. But there is a lot of making fun of his weight. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, I think I just said this on the last episode. We are in no way in, uh, in the habit of body shaming here, but some of these, uh, some of these, uh, verses are, are quite humorous. Uh, let's, I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, there was an ease in Herbeck's manner and a twinkle in his eye. There was grease on Herbeck's fingers as he polished off some fries. And when some popcorn spilled out as he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the dome could doubt twas Herbeck at bat. <laughs> Ten thousand eyes were on him as the game ground to a halt. 
5,000 tongues applauded as he drained a chocolate malt. And as the pitcher glared at him, his hands on his hips, the mighty Herbeck gestured for a hot dog and some chips. (laughs) (laughs) So he takes strike one, he takes strike two. There's a verse for each of them. Then uh, it goes on. The smile is gone from Herbeck's lips. He mutters, time out, please, and hurries to the dugout for a Whopper double cheese. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Herbeck's blow. (laughs) And, uh, of course, he strikes out, just like Casey did, and uh, they're going to wait till next year because Mighty Herbeck's on a diet is the final word here. You know, it's it's kind of funny. I was thinking about Herbeck not too long ago and how his last name starts with HR, Mm -hmm. and how, you know, I wish there was a, a player whose last name started with SB for stolen base. And but all I could think of was that place, Sbarro. That's, uh, you know, is there anybody named Sbarro in the. Uh, yeah, that great New zones? York. That great New York pizza. Yeah. But place. then I found, I did a little research. The, the Texas Rangers have a guy named Josh Spores. Yeah, he's SB. a pitcher, though, right? He's a pitcher. He's not going to steal any bases. Yeah. I'm very upset about this. We need an SB guy to steal bases. Yeah, can we make that happen? Let's make that happen. Make that happen. All right, uh, also making his debut today, remember it's August 23rd, in 1983 is Juan Samuel. Oh, the great Juan Samuel, one of the best haircuts in baseball. You know, beyond the Jerry Curl, which was just top-notch, he knew how to wear a uniform. He did. He looked sharp. God, yeah, he is one of those guys that just looked good in a baseball uniform. Uh, Also... Only player in baseball history to have 700 at-bats during their rookie season. Wow. That's pretty. I mean, he did come up in 83, as I said. He made his debut. He only played in 18 games. So technically, 84 was his rookie year. He played in 160 games. Led the league in plate appearances, at-bats, triples with 19, as well as strikeouts, which he did for the next three years afterwards as well. Likewise, just like Herbeck, he came in second in the Rookie of the Year balloting to, again, the aforementioned new Hall of Gamer, Dwight Gooden, which, mm. again, podcasting professional right here. Let's see. Overall, Samwell played for 16 years in the big leagues. Might want to note this for you immaculate grid players. Uh, Philadelphia, the Dodgers, the Blue Jays, the Royals, the Tigers, the Mets, and Cincinnati. Wow. Overall, a 259 average, 315 on base. Struck out a lot, did not walk a lot. Uh, let's see, 161 yeah. home runs, but 102 triples. Led the league wow. twice in triples and 396 career stolen bases. That's not a bad, not a bad year. Yeah, bad I mean year. that that rookie season in 1984, he stole 72 bases and was only caught 15 times. That's very impressive. That is very impressive. All right. So, Mark, those the, the 700 plus at bats that I mentioned, the only is the only player to do it in their rookie season. There have only been four other players that have done it, period. Or I'm sorry, three other players that have done it, period. Samuel is the fourth. Those players, Willie Wilson. I know you knew that one. Yep. Uh, Ichiro. Sure. And Jimmy Rollins. Oh, really? There there we go. Uh, there are 14,000 plus big leaguers, though, who finished their career with less than 700 total at-bats. He did it in his rookie year. Very That's impressive. Very impressive. That's a lot of baseball to be played right there. 
That is. I'm jealous. All right. So anyway, that's going to do it for our uh, for our debut segment. Again, remember, today is August 23rd, and those uh, those guys made their debuts along with some others. So, Mark, let's let the grounds crew come out and do their stuff. We've got a special pregame presentation here. So while they're doing that, we're sitting up the chairs and the microphone behind home plate. Because, Mark, our main segment this week is actually uh, more than a week in the making. Because of some scheduling issues, we were originally going to talk to our guests last week. But hey, you know what? They had a major motion picture debuting across the country. So I think uh, we can excuse them for having to punt our little podcast for a week. <laughs> because we are very excited to be joined today by the inspiration for the new movie, The Hill. Ricky Hill and director Jeff Celentano are here. Gentlemen, welcome. We're glad to speak with you. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, we've uh, we've seen the movie. We love baseball movies. Uh, we our, our our podcast is really a baseball history and a pop culture kind of podcast. So oh, this was right up our alley. It really was. First of all, let's talk. Let's just talk about the movie and kind of how it came to to be about before we get into some of the sp- specifics. Um, obviously, the movie is about your life, Ricky, and 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 coming up and and the struggles that you faced playing baseball and how that affected your life how did this movie though get made well it started back in the 70s my brother wrote a story that's what in the beginning about my family and about how i signed a major league contract with the expos after that second year they found out about my back they may i had to go through physical i go through x-rays you could see I had no disc in my spine. You could see it. So naturally, they're going to let you go because you, you're going to go nowhere. But I didn't quit it then. I didn't want to quit. You know, it didn't matter. Yeah, I was in pain every day, sure. But I was used to it my whole life. This movie started, like I said, from 78. Up my, I got an offer in 78. They wanted to do this from a guy at my church that took it to this guy. his a producer in Hollywood, and they wanted to do a movie about it. And that's where it started just the movie. And at the same time, my parents both became down ill. And I, who wants to do a movie when your parents are ill? You know, both sick, could be dying. And very young, too, at 47 and 49 years old. And so I elected not to do the movie. And then later on, I, they came to me again several times asking me for the for the rights to the film, but I wouldn't give them up. And so I just wound up, um, held on to them for a good while. Next thing you know, I let, was letting another group look at it. And all they, all they did was kind of foul it up. And then, then I found my hero, and he, you're, he, you got him right now on the other line. So there he is. Thank you, Ricky. Ricky's talking about Jeff Celentano, uh, the the director of this movie. Jeff, first tell me, are, are you a baseball fan? I mean, is that one of the things that drew you to this, or is it the, the story is obviously so compelling? It was the story. Um, I'm not a baseball fan. Uh, do I like baseball? I love it. I just don't really follow it. Um, no, I played sports in high school. Every sport, I was undefeated in track. I did the two twenty. I raced the two twenty, and I threw a javelin really far. I was a good. I had a good arm, and then I became a, a quarterback in my sophomore year, and um, football team. And then I really fell in love with basketball. I was I played basketball as a little kid in grade school, all the way through in high school. But I didn't really go join the team for some reason. I don't remember why. Um, maybe it was the guy that was the coach I didn't like or something. I was a wrestler. I did all that stuff in high school. The kids do. Total jock, but 
as I grew up and got older, I just didn't have that much interest. Um, I, I have certain teams I loved. I mean, I was a Miami Dolphins fan for years when Dan Marino was quarterback. And uh, then I was obviously a Phillies and an Eagles fan because I grew up 30 miles from there in South Jersey. And so sports wasn't a big deal for me. But it was funny. A lot of people said, how can you make a sports film and you're not even a baseball guy? And I said, well, how can Spielberg make a dinosaur movie and he's not a dinosaur guy? <laughs> he doesn't know anything about dinosaurs. He hired a special effects company called Industrial Light and Magic. <laughs> you know? yes. So with me, I hired the best baseball people I could find, including my producer, Warren Ostergaard. He's a baseball person. He almost was pro. And so, it, so Warren's a baseball guy. And he would not allow me to make any shot, even a, even a quick shot, uh, of a, any baseball player that didn't look like he knew how to run or throw or, or hit. So we had a tryout. We had a big tryout. We hired real baseball players, and I brought Mark Ellis on, yeah, he did the rookie and Miracle and American Underdog and you name it. He's a football, hockey, baseball aficionado, and he loved the script. He got Dennis knows him. Dennis referred him to me. Warren turned out Warren's son plays baseball with his son. They both live in South Carolina, so it was a perfect fit. And Mark got very invested. He got in my office. He started working on the baseball dialogue with me after it was already finished. That so we had to change some of the dialogue, you know. And I said, okay, you're, you you know what you're doing. And he would start getting into the scene and he would start crying. And I'm like, Mark, what's going on? It was so funny to see all these tough men bawling their eyes out, including myself, Ricky too. Um, it's a very emotional movie, man. And I wanted to direct it like that. And I didn't want to make a sports movie because I want, I, know, I have people I know and I go, Hey, would you go see a sports a movie about, would you go see my movie? And they look at the trailer and they go, no, why? I hate sports. Okay, but this isn't a sports movie. So then I redid the trailer so that it really didn't cater to the sport. It catered to the family values and the family situation. That's how the trailer became the trailer it is today. And the next thing was faith. You know, I'm a Christian, but I don't I don't publicize that or point that in people's faces. If you're not, I love you just as much and you care less. Like, you know, um, I wanted it to be for people that weren't Christian. I wanted it to be for people that were. I wanted it to be for everybody. And it's turning out that way. I mean, a guy told me the other day, a journalist, he said, you keep likening this movie to fit your, 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 your models were Field of Dreams, The Natural, Love of the Game. But all those movies had specific things. Your movie combines all of it in one. How did you do that? And I said, it's Ricky's life. Yeah, I didn't know. Ricky did it. And so I said, then I got Angelo Pizzo, who doesn't write faith movies, to write it. I didn't get the guy who wrote five days in heaven or something, you know, I didn't want that guy. Chris Kimlin, the DP shoots a lot of those movies. He shot American underdog. He shot, I can only imagine. And, but that's not why I hired him. I hired him because he understood the genre and he shot big movies that ended up on many screens. So the whole, ca the whole cast and crew I put together was based on kind of a universal idea because I wanted to touch everybody and it's working. Supposedly it's working. And one guy wrote me a letter that made me cry for about 10 minutes. I'm not making that up. He wrote me about his father and how his father got hit in the forehead with a hardball and went blind for life. And his dream was to meet Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle became his best friend. And Mickey Mantle ended up getting uh, John Smoltz to hang out with him. And then they got him a job as an announcer for baseball back then. I mean, the story would wreck you. I sent it to everybody. I'm like, you should put this in every newspaper. <laughs> Well, there's your next movie. There's that sounds like a great story. Trust me, trust me. You're right. I tell you what. When I saw uh, that you had uh, 
Angelo Pizzo as as your writer. I knew we were in for a treat. The guy's done a couple of decent movies. So. A couple. <laughs> Hoosiers, absolutely one of my favorite sports movies of all time. And and of course, yeah, we, yeah uh, I got very excited when I saw that, and I knew it was going to be a well written movie, and of course, it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The writing the writing blows me away every time I see it. I've seen it one hundred thousand times. Yeah. You mentioned a name that perked my ears, but I think it might be a different Mark Ellis. Because when I think of Mark Ellis, second baseman for the Oakland A's, very popular player. And one of my questions was going to be, I mean, you've got Ricky Hill here. This is the guy whose story this is about. He's a baseball player. You know, a lot of movies have those uh, those technical directors there so that you don't end up with like, a, you know, an Anthony Perkins in Fear Strikes Out that doesn't know how to play the game. Did you have someone there or Ricky, did you fulfill that role to be like, hey, this isn't how you do this on a baseball diamond. This is how you do it. No, that's what Ricky started off. I'll let him talk, but that's what Ricky started off wanting to do. And I said, Rick, you can't do it because it's a movie. It has to be handled from a sports coordinator. And we have the best one in the business, Mark Ellis. If you look him up, it'll blow your mind. He's done every major movie from the, he did the rookie. So Ricky was sure that I was wrong. Yeah. Then Ricky, he said, he was yelling at me, Jeff, we never fought or anything, but this time he was like, this is my world. I'm not getting in the middle of your world. I said, you know, with all due respect, come to the set and meet Mark Ellis. And he said, okay. And he came and Rick will tell you the story. It is so really comical because I didn't really realize what I was getting myself into. (laughs) I really did not. It was so, it was so big that I like I felt like a peanut sitting in the stands and not really knowing anything about how to make a game that's not really really going on at that time. I'm used to a real ball game. So I I had insisted to Jeff that I run the show on the baseball part, but he brings in this guy Mark Ellis and when he brought him in, I saw what he did and I could not believe it. It took me about 10, 15 minutes to think about it. And I walked over to Jeff and I said, thank God in heaven that you did and brought this guy in. Hallelujah. Because I could have never reached it ever. No way. Tell him what Mark said the first time he was on the field to the, all the people that were auditioning. I love it. I'd never heard it. You know what? It reminded me. It was like, it was like, um, what's his name from uh, Full Metal Jacket? Um, Arlie Army. Arlie Army. Arlie. It was like Arlie on the field with the kids trying yeah. out for a movie. Rick, tell him what happened. Yeah, he walks out there to the ball field, and I had, you know, here I am. I'm I'm an ex-ball player, and I'm just watching these young kids. They're trying out like a tryout to be in a movie, so you have to be good, right? You you really have to be good to, to do that as well, to be in the movie, because you have to look like a ball player to be in this movie. And so Mark steps out on the field and the first words he said was, yeah, on, on a big yeah, microphone, he, he's talking to the guys and he says, guys, let me, I'm going to ask you this right now. Anyone that's not, didn't, didn't play on the varsity team. If they did not play and they were the first or second top of their team, you need to leave now. If you're not one or two yeah. top of your game, Get in the bus and go home. That's go home. 
Then he goes to the college guys and says the same thing to the college. If you're not number one or number two all-star, did you? Did, what did you do? If you didn't hit over 350, go home. We don't need you. So he cut all the fat right out of the gate. I'm sitting there watching, you know, we got a batch of 300 ballplayers, and I'm wondering how many of them are going to get to stay? <laughs> and I'm going, you know what? I could have never done that. I would have never even thought of that. Yes, I would have made sure that they look like they're a ball player without a doubt, but it would have taken me 10 times the work. He cut the fat right out and started it. And, man, he made a movie starting from the word go. Jeff brought in this gunslinger. Boy, I looked at Jeff and I said, I stand corrected, just like Tombstone. I stand corrected. (laughs) He did. did. We We were on the field. We're shooting the scenes. Now, you got to know how to stage the scenes because, like Ricky said, it's not a game. It's like piece by piece. I mean, we might have a shot of Colin at the at, at home plate hitting with a catcher behind him doing something, and that's just a shot. Ricky would never figure have any idea how to do that. So without Mark, you don't have a movie. You just have a bunch of, a bunch of filmmakers thinking they know how to make a baseball movie and <laughs> end up with most of the ones we see. As I always say, I watched all the bad ones like my movie and all the good ones, so I knew what not to do. I've had Major League Baseball players watch the film and go, man, you nailed it. I mean, if anybody says Colin doesn't look like he is who he is, that's fine in some of the scenes. That was on purpose because he wasn't a pro yet, but he could hit home runs over the wall all day long, and that's exactly what Ricky did. found a double that matched Colin exactly down to where I have scenes in the film. If I told you where they are, you'd go back and stop the frame and go, oh, my gosh, not even Colin. <laughs> the wide shots are this kid who was a phenom. Ricky found him, and he said, you wait till you see this kid, Jeff. It's unbelievable. He could be his double, his doppelganger. Yeah. Kid had a swing. He would. I think when he auditioned, he hit a bunch of home runs right off the bat, and no pun intended. And then he uh, – he would go down on one knee almost to touch the ground like Ricky's swing. He copied Ricky's swing exactly. So it was authentic. And then when we got into Colin, we did very close shots. So you couldn't see if he, you know, physically looked the part. But I didn't want to see having the swing not look like Ricky could look, you know. I, I, I took a lot of pride in the authenticity of it. Plus, my producer was like standing in my ear with a, you know, with a megaphone and then a pistol. You know, you're not going to have one shot in this movie that's not authentic. And I was like, all right. Yeah, baseball fans love their authenticism. Oh, yeah, yeah. I knew that. I knew Just that. running this show, uh, you know what, if we get something wrong, they'll let us know politely. Oh, yeah. But they'll let us know. Uh, Ricky, did you know, because I, when I was watching it and I, and I saw, you know, the scenes of throwing the rocks up and hitting it with a stick, down in, in, in uh, Latin America, it's very common for young kids that can't afford, you know, the baseball equipment, they will play baseball games with sticks and bottle caps is what they will use as a ball to throw. And, yeah. you know, just equally as hard as hitting a rock. I thought that was, I, I, I really thought that that was very interesting. You came up with your own thing. Yeah. Well, I did not know that. What you just told me, that's the first time I've ever heard what you just said. And now it's going to be our next movie, Sticks and Bottle Caps. Yeah, there you go. Latin kids. They use empty tissue boxes and they form gloves out of them. I mean, they're they're very ingenious. But I mean, you know, you make do with what you've got. That's even the mother of invention. There yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah, you know, I had never even seen a baseball glove. I never really seen one. I think until I was eight years old, exactly eight. I mean, I'd seen them, but I never did have possession of one, or a ball, or a bat. 
or anything of the sort. But but yet I was I was just a hitter, just I was just a born hitter. That's just it. Either either you got it or you don't. The way I look at it. I'm playing in a men's hardball league now, and I I, I know that's for sure. <laughs> it certainly I seems like, that way with pitchers too. You know, it really is. Either you got it or you don't. Exactly. You can either you it or you can't. Telling you, either you're right, brother. You, you just don't. Either you got it or you don't. And no one had to tell me how to hit the ball. When I had uh, Gene Mock walk up to me, and I'm sure you've heard of Gene Mock. Absolutely. He walked up to me and told me, he said, I, I just hit nine straight out of the park in batting practice, BP. I hit nine straight line drives out. I skipped one, and then I hit one last one, hit 11 balls, and I, I quit. And I was through, and I was walking over. He looked at me, and he said, who are you? Now, I'm 18 years old, but I weigh 239 pounds at 18. And I told him my name. He said, whatever you do in your life, don't you ever change your swing. Mm. Where did you get that swing? And I told him, hitting rocks. That's awesome. That's a great story right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think I've heard that. I did hear it once, but it's been a long time. I've had the fortune of being in a few movies, TV shows, and so on like that. And it's always crazy to me how they can change the atmosphere of a set or of like, I was in a, a TV show twice that's filmed in Portland, but it takes place in Boston. And the, the painstaking manner they go through to turn a street in Portland to a street in Boston. You guys were looking at cars from what, the 60s and 70s? Oh, yeah. Well, 50s, the 60s and 50s. Okay. Mostly 50s, because what I researched to be authentic in Texas in the 60s, it was the 50s. They didn't have a lot of money, so they didn't have new cars. There you go. You know, you know how hard it is to find cars that are beat up and ugly today that are from the 50s and 60s? That's why I was asking you. Get <laughs> it. So that station wagon was the most iconic thing I've ever seen. They kept sending me pictures of cars for the family car. When I saw that thing, I was like, holy smokes. So they shipped it on a trailer, and it came, and it needed a mechanic for like three weeks, I think. And it still didn't run well. And it had had no gas tank because it all rusted out. So they had a little quart this big. Ricky doesn't even know this. (laughs) In, In the engine. In the engine was a little plastic box. And it would run a mile, and then it would die, and we'd have to refill the little box. It was a joke. <laughs> and you'll see, if you see the behind the scenes of this movie, you'll see the crew pushing the car in and out of shots everywhere. When Dennis runs out of gas, that car is not running. <laughs> pushed into the shots. So it was funny because that car was hilarious. I mean, if you look at it really closely, it's a piece of work. You know, it'll probably be in a museum one day, hopefully. Ricky, so there's a, a scene in the movie where uh, baseball cards, you're, you're looking through some baseball cards. It's a big topic on our on our podcast. Did you have a lot of baseball cards? Uh, you know, obviously in the scene, they were they were given to you and, and caused a bit of uh, trouble. But I mean, was baseball cards something that you were interested in or had possession of? Not Not as much as my brother. He was a baseball fanatic. I really wasn't as much, but he was a he was a great ball player. In fact, I learned a lot from him. He's the one who brought me the game, basically. He kept baseball cards. He had a I mean, I can't even tell you how many Mickey Mantles that wind up just got getting thrown away, brand new ones. Mm. Ouch. Rookie cards. <laughs> and you know what they're worth today. Yeah. <laughs> My brother mainly was involved in the cards. I wasn't as much as him, but he kept the cards all the time showing me uh, my favorite player, which was Mickey Mantle, of course. 
Uh, Mickey Mantle was my hero, and Willie Mays was too, because I, I never seen the outfielder play like Willie Mays. So saying that, yeah, my brother would bring me those cars, the ones that I really like, the people the, the most. There's another scene. I don't, I don't want to go scene by scene in the movie, but there's another one that really resonated with me when uh, you are peeking in the window of a diner and watching what looks like it's the game of the week, which, you right. know, us growing up, we've talked about this. You know, there was a time when we got to see one game a week and that was uh, that was it. Is that a, a true to life thing that was put on screen? And, you know, how often did you get to see actual baseball being played? Well, every Sunday there's baseball being played and we would leave the ch- leave church and immediately go to the window because we don't have a television set. And I never we never had one. In fact, we, we had nothing. We didn't have the money to even go in to even eat. So, but we wanted to go watch the baseball game, and most of the time, it was always showing Mickey Mantle all the time. And so, those are the preachers' kids. They ain't got a nickel to rub together. That's exactly right. We didn't have a nickel to rub together. A nickel would have been great. We actually we would go to the um, we go to that window almost every Sunday. Well, that that makes me happy that that was an actual because I mean that was just so Hollywood. It's such a great thing that has to be in a movie, whether it happened or not. The fact that it actually was the case. That's awesome. It really was the case. Well, I mean, the movie's authentic, except for the beginning with the windshield. Mm. That was changed from an actual scene that Ricky really told me about where he hit the rock over a radio tower. Not a real tall one, but one enough to make you look and go, that would never happen. So we decided to make it more interesting, but also a little fantasy. And and we just said of hitting it, hitting it over the, the radio tower and then Ray sees it, we had him hit Ray's windshield. And we thought it was more clever. That's that's the only thing that's not true to that I could not, that if you asked me to prove it and document it, I couldn't. Everything else I could. Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, maybe tell us a little bit a little bit about Dennis Quaid. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, I, I absolutely love almost everything he's ever been in. What was it like to work with him? He seems like just a good dude. Everything that you feel and think is exactly what it was like. Even funnier. I mean, you know, Dennis is a character in not such a great way. Like we had, I won't tell you the stories cause there's too many, but we had some times on set. He and I, where we, we butted heads a little bit, but never like a negative thing. It would be like, do I have to say this line? And he'd say, why? And I'd say, because I worked on it for three months trying to figure that line out. He'd say, well, then I, do I really have to say it? I said, you have to say it. And then he would do something so much more powerful, like break down and cry. And then he turned to me and say, you still need the line, <laughs> you know, so that kind of thing. But, but working with him was a gem. I mean, definitely the best act, best movie star I've ever worked with as far as personality and his performance. I mean, they both combined were a hundred, a hundred percent. He shows up every morning he looks like he just rolled out of bed. He's got his hair sticking out. He care less. He's got his bulldog with him, Peaches. And I got to kick Peaches off the set. And he's like, Peaches, get out of here. You know? <laughs> and then we do the scene, and he kind of doesn't give you a lot in the rehearsal because he's saving it, which I didn't know. I hadn't worked with him before. And I was nervous. And he comes walking up the set with his wardrobe on, ready to shoot, and it's a different person. Nice. His guns were loaded, and he was ready for, for battle. And he nailed it. And the nuances and the little moments he creates. That whole scene with the mitt, you know, where he writes in the mitt. I just put the mitt on the desk, and I and I had another pen there. 
and he didn't pick it up. He picked up the fountain pen that she did her calligraphy with. And he sat there and I didn't even direct him. I just said, do whatever you feel. And he walked in and he had all those real subtle moments. It could have been overacted and mugging and all kinds of weird stuff. But Dennis just, he, he felt his character and he played it exactly like that dad would have done. So Ricky, in 1975, you played in Lethbridge when you were in the Expos uh, Farm Club. Andre Dawson was on that team for 20 games that year. Did you, Were you there while he was there? <laughs> yeah, I was there. I roomed with him. Oh, really? Wow. He was Ricky's roommate. Oh, wow. Do you still keep in contact with him? Yeah. In fact, I just talked with him today. Oh, wow. (laughs) No kidding. I told you guys it would be 10 hours if I had to make the whole story. Yeah, he and Ellis Valentine both. Oh, yeah, the the part of the outfield of of that great Expos outfield. Yeah, Yeah, Cromartie. It was Cromartie. Warren Cromartie, yeah. It was Crow, uh, Dawson. And, but but Dawson, when Dawson went up, he said 20 games. I think he played more than 20 games with us. He played – I don't know how they got that 20-game bit. I'm just going by baseball reference. I trust you more on this one. Yeah, Dawson <laughs> played the whole season was there. Mm. He didn't play – he didn't leave until the season was over. And then he went to uh, he went to Denver to go play in Denver. No, and that's not true either. We left. We both left together, and we went to play winter ball in uh, Tampa, St. Pete, Florida. So I played with him, I don't know, you know, that that actually then I came back to the Expos next year, and then uh, we all, well, you know, when you, the reason that Andre took to me so much was because I was so young at 18 signing, and all these guys are all older. You know, they got, they can grow Fu Manchus, and I can't even get a, (laughs) I can't even get a peach fuzz off my face. And um, so, Dawson was just like he 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 came over there and he basically just took care of me. I think he's four or five years older than me. A big well, difference. Rick, let's tell them a story that nobody's ever heard. Which one? Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Bill yeah. Bill yeah, Murray. yeah y'all didn't know that. I I was on Saturday Night Live in '78 with Bill Murray when when I was playing the Northwest League and Bill had came out and Bill stayed in our uh, our big place that we had. All the time, there was five of us ballplayers that lived together, and we all kind of hung out. And I kind of uh, talked Bill into uh, getting us on Saturday Night Live, and so we did. We did a skit on Saturday Night Live on October the twenty eighth of nineteen seventy eight. It came out, and it's out right now. You can see it on YouTube. It's called "What What We Did Last Summer with Bill Murray." I got, I got to see that. Yeah, now. we'll have to look that up. Yeah, you got to look it up. Um, it's a big deal. I mean, it's yeah, the whole team on there, right? The whole team. We, we blackballed him a little bit to get it, but we got it. Uh, he just loved. He would step back and just watch me hit shots out of the park and BP, and he just always loved it so much. And so I picked on him quite a bit because I told him that he couldn't hit water if he jumped off the ship. And um, <laughs> that's the first time when he heard that. He goes, I had never heard anything like that. What an <laughs> insult. And, uh, but that, ain't, that, that wasn't all the insults. But anyway, but when you're running around with a guy, a lot of things happen when you're running around every day with him. Ricky went out to visit him on the set of, uh, uh, with Robert Duvall, the movie. Get Low. Get Low. And Ricky told him the movie's getting made. This was when we first started 17 years ago. And Bill started laughing. He said, who's going to do a story about your life? Come on. Yeah. And he said, no, you know my story. He goes, I know it's a great story, but 
uh, who's going to make a story about you? He said, who's going to get made? I bet Bill's shocked today. Yeah, yeah, I'll guarantee he's sitting home right now about to have a heart attack. (laughs) He's a huge baseball fan, though. I mean, I know I grew up in Salt Lake City, and he was part owner of an independent team, the Salt Lake Trappers, there. He owns a team in South Carolina now. Yeah, he was. He owned the St. Paul Saints at one point too. He was part owner there. I mean, he's a he's a huge and obviously a big Cubs fan. I mean, we remember the first night oh, game yeah. at Wrigley. He was there, and yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, he's he's a big old cubby. One more name I wanted to talk about that uh, that's in the movie that is is actually a, for Mark. Uh, you can see Mark is wearing his Nolan Ryan hat. Uh, I want to talk about Red Murph who is oh, yes. the, the scout, the main scout in this movie, who in you. real Thank life you. signed you as well as Nolan Ryan. Can you tell us a little bit about Red? Well, yeah, I talked to Nolan Ryan and his family last night. Oh, <laughs> we need to just follow you around. <laughs> well, no, no, they about this movie. They were going to see the movie last night, and Red told me the story about how he signed Nolan because Nolan was throwing 101 miles an hour. And uh, he couldn't get it over the plate. And Red worked with him for, I think, a couple of years, he said. He got him throwing on the black. And he said, with me, I liked it because Red said, with you, I don't even have to work with you. It's just going to happen one way or the way. But little did he know, they didn't know at the time, they didn't know that I had a deteriorated spine uh, and I don't, what I, all I'd been through because I had to hide it because there's no way they would sign me knowing that. So I hid it. Should I say I kept it to myself? So, yeah, Red Murph was a hero to me, still is. I, t- I talk about him and I get heartbroken. I was there with him right before he died. He gave me the chance of a lifetime. No one has ever pulled this stunt before telling a man, you're going to go hit for both teams. He told me, he said, you're a, uh, because when I went up there and told him, I said, I'm the best hitter in this camp, and it's a shame you're never going to get to see it. And that's pretty cocky words to say to a man that signed Nolan Ryan. He told me if my bat was in tune with my tongue, you're a hell of a hitter. And so I said back to him, he he said this, he said these words. He said, do you really think that you're the best hitter here? And I said, no, sir, I don't think it. I know it. Very nice. That's what I said. Those were the words that I said to him. But before that, he also said, do you know where you're standing? When I went up there to him. He said, you're standing on the hill like I didn't belong on that pitcher's mound. Mm. Uh, yeah, in the, in the real story, he's on the pitcher's mound, and Ricky crossed that field and walked up to him. We put him in the stands because we didn't want to give away the field. I wanted the field to be like Gladiator when, when Russell Crowe walks out into that arena the first time. I wanted the audience to experience what Colin Ricky experienced that night of the tryouts. When, you, when you're playing with a stick and a ball and then you're playing in high school – and then you get to the big show and you walk out in front of all those people. I wanted the audience to experience for the first time. So we changed that moment, even though it was a very poignant moment. It was still poignant the way it worked. It just wasn't on the mound. But he said, you're standing on the hill. That's part one of the reasons the title really works for the film. Absolutely. Now, beyond being this great hitter, though, and this is something that wasn't covered in the movie, I think, and obviously (laughs) there's so many things that you have going on here, but beyond being this great hitter, you were a pitcher as well. Is that what I read? Yeah, I was uh, 
I was a pitcher early in my career as well. I could play anywhere you want me to play. I was not going to play right field because that those are for the the rinkadinks, you know. So I wasn't <laughs> ever going to do that. But saying that, I, it, the reason that I even made it powerful, the the man that just left my place here just then witnessed it. In fact, Jeff, I'd love for you to talk to him. That guy that you saw earlier, right? He was there. I struck out 21 straight batters in a row at 12 years old. Oof. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you're, you were b- between Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani. I mean, you're right there. You've got the power. You've got the, uh, the pitching. I also read back in 1991, there was a, an outfielder for the Mets in the minor leagues named Rodney McRae. It, this was a viral video long before YouTube where in the minor leagues, he ran through the fence in right field trying to catch down, uh, trying to catch a fly ball. Did I read that you did something similar to that as well? I did the same thing in left field. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, yeah, I think I we've got enough went, for a second movie here already. Yeah, I went straight through the wall. I, I, I was determined to catch it just like Jeff was determined to do the right job on this movie. I have to go back to Jeff as well, but I was, we were both, we both have determination and I was determined to catch that ball no matter what. Oh, I caught it. All right. (laughs) I went straight through the wall, had the glove in my hand, but I was knocked out. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. I'm glad it didn't end up like bump Bailey in the natural because he did not make it when he did that. So (laughs) no, 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 I went through the wall. I couldn't even believe that you could actually break plyboard. I didn't know such thing, but, you know, I weigh 239 pounds, and that's a lot a lot of solid meat. You wouldn't believe how big my legs and thighs were. They were huge. I, do you know that on the Expos, in the Expos, I had the biggest shoulders and the biggest thighs on the, on the team. And he's still got deeps. <laughs> Jeff, Ricky, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, this was so much fun. And the movie, best of luck. Uh, we've talked about it before. We'll continue to talk about it. Great job. Uh, it was really an honor to get to speak with both of you. And, and we really appreciate you jumping on. So, guys, um, this is one of our favorite interviews. I think Ricky will agree because we say that to a few people. But you guys definitely are probably one of the most unusual two guys we met based on your questions. We've okay. talked about things. We talked about things that we've never talked about. And that's, we've done a hundred interviews and that not that we don't love doing them, but to have something completely fresh and new, we've been on here an hour. Right on. Yeah. You guys, I'll, be, you know, hey, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm like Jeff is I, I can sit here and talk to you guys all night long. Well, well let's do a pay-per-view. <laughs> so, my, hey, so, hey, my, my hat's off to you, my friend. Jeff's, Jeff's got it right. See, he's right again. He's right about everything. He's a pro. You know, that's what makes me so mad at him. He's just right about everything. Oh, those guys. One of those guys. Uh-oh. Guys, yeah. thank you, my man. Appreciate All right, it. Bye. All right. Bye, thank guys. All right. Again, thank you uh, very much. We uh, we enjoyed talking with them. Uh, also enjoyed the movie. I hope, uh, you know, again, we're a little bit late on this. It did come out last week. So I'm guessing that some of our audience might have already seen the movie. If not, hey, uh, we got a long holiday weekend coming up. Go uh, check it out. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's still summer. You know, it's not officially summer is not over until the end of. Of, of the holiday weekend here. So it's probably pretty warm where you are. Go to a nice air-conditioned movie theater and watch this. It's a baseball movie. That's right. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate them coming. Uh, again, uh, Ricky Hill, 
Jeff Celentano, The Hill. It stars Dennis Quaid. Uh, it's got some uh, questionable stirrup wear in, throughout the movie. Uh, yes. Not really uh, era accurate, nor our favorite kind of stirrups. But, you know, it, I'm willing to overlook it. It's a baseball movie. Uh, there's uh, one Hall of Famer in the movie. But, you know, keep your eye out for beyond that. Please go out and see it. Baseball movies are always fun. So uh, do that. And obviously, if you're listening here, you're a baseball fan. But uh, that is going to start to wrap up the show. Didn't have time for Wax Packs Heroes this week. It will be back next week. We can promise you that uh, if you want more information on us, uh, you know, maybe not our addresses, Social Security number like that. Uh, you, we're going to tell you how to find it. I don't know why I said that, but uh, you can find it on uh, in the show notes here. But also, we're just all over the Internet. All you got to do is search for Two Strike Noise. That is T-W-O Strike Noise. Uh, we're on all of the social media platforms. And uh, I'm going to try to start posting some more. Been kind of burnt out from social media lately. And, and it's just busy. It's the hockey and football season are coming up. So I've got a lot of work to do. And, uh, Mark, we also have an email address. Sure, you can write to us on the electronic mail at two strike noise. Spell it out: two strike noise at gmail dot com. That's uh, that's how uh, Ricky and Jeff got a hold of us. So right. you know it works. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, once again, thank you to our guest, Ricky Hill, Jeff Salentano. Go out and see the Hill. And uh, Mark, let's do this again next week. What do you say? Hey, I'm in. All right. We'll see everybody on the next episode of Two Strike Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>